the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. Man, I'm so glad you joined us today, and I hope our time together helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, We've all had tough bosses. Uh, Sometimes we have been the difficult boss to get along with. And we're going to be super honest and open the vault and really talk about leadership. Where do bad leaders come from? How to deal with brutal feedback? The secret to a great one-on-one meeting and a lot more. My guest is Matt Tresseter, the CEO of Leader, a recent CEO of the year. We're going to talk about his leadership journey. And yeah, well, he shares some pretty honest mistakes. Today's episode is brought to you by Glue and by Convoy of Hope. How can you build an engagement strategy that you can be proud of? Well, you can visit get.glue.us slash art of engagement to access my free course, The Art of Engagement. And by Convoy of Hope. How can you immediately respond to global crises like the ones we've seen, well, really all over the world, uh, hurricanes, you know, the, the, the challenges we see? Go to convoy.org slash carry. That's convoy.org slash carry. Well, Matt Tresseter is the CEO of Leader. He is the recent CEO of the year. Now, it didn't start out that way. He's pretty honest about the turnover and churn he had and the mistakes he made as a young leader. We talk about where bad leaders come from, his own journey from rookie leader to CEO, his biggest mistakes, how to deal with brutal feedback. And you know what? We've all gotten it at one point or another and the secret uh, to a great one-on-one meeting. Matt is the chief executive officer and co-founder of Leader, a people development software company. He joined Leader after six years at the unicorn startup Pushpay, where he led all facets of the sales team. He is passionate about hiring, training, and developing leaders at every level. Leader exists to develop 1 million leaders through its software. So anyway, really excited for this conversation. Hey, if you're new here, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, For those of you, man, I hear from you like pretty much every week. It's like, I've been listening since the very beginning. Thank you so much. The privilege is that we get to do this because you listen, because you share it with your friends, because you subscribe, and because you tell other people. We would love your feedback too. So hit us up on social. I'm Kerry Newhoff on Instagram. Also, see Newhoff on some other channels, and you can just check us out there and make sure you let Matt know you enjoyed it as well. So, question for you How can you build an engagement strategy that really works at your church? Over the last decade, I've been talking about this a lot that really engagement is a new attendance. Well, For the first time ever, I've developed a brand new course called The Art of Engagement, and it's a free course to you, and it's on the Glue platform. It covers seven engagement strategies that I've used every day. In the course, you'll learn why you need to understand the unique psychology of your community and how to use that knowledge to keep people coming back, to get them engaged in their faith. So... If you're tired of low engagement and you're struggling to get attendance at your church or you want attendance to grow, check it out. Go to get.glue.us slash art of engagement. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O. So get.glue.us slash art of engagement. You can open up a free account and you can get access to the course immediately. Less than 30 seconds to sign up. Go to get.glue.us slash art of engagement. My friends in the US, of whom I have so many, told me that September is National Preparedness Month. So if you're listening and you don't have a family plan in case of an emergency, I'd encourage you to talk about that when you have a chance. But during times of disaster, I am thankful for organizations like Convoy of Hope. Uh, They help families, you know, insured or non-insured, people with a plan, people without a plan, all those who have been hardest hit. I mean, you've seen them at work in Maui already, and we're heading into hurricane season right now. They've already responded to dozens of disasters, so many of which never hit the news cycle, and they provide immediate relief like food, water, and hygiene kits. So if you want to learn more about Convoy, or better yet, if you're a business owner or a church leader, and you don't have a partner in this area, check out Convoy. They're my preferred partner. They will help you respond to things like fire, hurricanes, earthquakes, extreme drought, and a whole lot more. They do it all for you. And of course, you get to report back to your organization or church, hey, here's what we're doing on the field. Go to convoy.org slash carry. That's convoy.org slash C-A-R-E-Y for more. And now my conversation with Matt Tresseter. All right, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Carrie, great to be here. Yeah, yeah, great to hang out. So I want to start with some background because I've been thinking more and more about 
sort of our origins as leaders, and you've had quite the entrepreneurial journey we're going to get into, but I want to talk to you about um, your childhood and not like therapist level, talk to me about your childhood. <laughs> All right. So don't worry about that. I'm going to need but, a couch for that, Carrie. I'll need, uh-huh, the, I'll need a box of right. tissues. And <laughs> get some tissues. We'll talk all about it. But how did, how did your childhood shape you for what Leia had in your leadership? Yeah. Well, um, your listeners can probably tell I'm not originally from Dallas, Texas. So <laughs> that's right. You're in Dallas, though. But I am in Dallas. What part of New Zealand? What Auckland town? Yeah. City? Oh, you're Auckland. Okay, Auckland, great. Which is yeah. where about a third of New Zealand has come from. Um, exactly. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, from from Auckland, New Zealand. Um, grew up there, and um, I think everything as you're growing up has the potential to shape you either positive or negatively, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can either choose to live with it to let that positively or negatively shape you. Um, the two things I think uniquely maybe to New Zealand, one is we have this thing called an OE or an overseas experience. I'm not sure if they do that in Canada. Is that a thing? Okay. No, we, we just have C's, but we never cross them. Unless you, you choose it. So so you you decided to do an overseas experience. Is that like yes. a rite of passage? It's it's very much like a rite of passage. So okay. uh, you finish high school, instead of jumping straight into college, it's pretty typical that you'd go overseas for a year and kind of find yourself. Um, oh, wow. And so... Uh, I did that, and then I never really went back. Um, I I just fell in love with the states and with Europe and everywhere else. And I'm like, ah, I'm not really going to quite go back to New Zealand. So that was probably the first one. Just this idea of get out and go experience and go take risks and and have an adventure. And the other one, and you, you, your listeners have probably heard, uh, New Zealanders or Australians talk about this before, but tall poppy syndrome is certainly the other thing. Mm. That, that shapes how you think about your career and how ambitious you are and how you celebrate success. I mean, those things certainly um, stick with me. So talk about tall poppy syndrome, because we have it here in Canada. I think it might be a Commonwealth thing. And that's one of the reasons I love the U.S. Like the U.S. celebrates success. It's like, it's okay if you do all right. Like, I'm not going to be jealous of you. How did you experience um, tall poppy syndrome? Growing up, yeah. In, no, in if New your Zealand. listeners haven't heard about it, the idea is that there's a field of poppies of flowers, and if one yeah. grows above the rest, the idea is that the society would chop that tall poppy down and and make you belong with the rest of us. So in New Zealand, what that looks like in the public sphere is anytime someone does something incredible, like even the the captain of the All Blacks, the rugby team, I remember he was mm-hmm. on the front page in the New Zealand Herald once for how much money he made. And they chop them down and make you feel like you're everybody else, and it's just a blast piece on people that are successful, which to your point, is completely countercultural to here, right? Oh, um, in America, it's like, good for you, dude. Like, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so here's one story that is is a little um, a little sad, really. So when I finished Pushpay uh, and wrapped up there, and we'll get into that story, um, someone literally told me that was a lottery experience. You reached the apex of your career. Don't expect that to happen again. True story. And was that someone from your homeland? Mm-hmm. Who said that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So what is that? Like, I wouldn't mind unpacking that a little bit because we do, it's mostly an American audience, but we do yeah. have some global listeners, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And, you know, if you're an American who travels abroad, get ready. Like, okay, I'll give you an example. When I introduce myself to a crowd, when I'm public speaking, In Canada or in the Commonwealth or Europe, I'll usually start by saying, you know, hey, I started with this. I didn't think I'd be a pastor. Started with these little tiny churches. By the grace of God, we we grew. And it's funny, you're in Dallas. I remember giving that bio, which is my natural MO, years ago in Dallas. And I could tell I was losing all the leaders in the room because they're like, what are you? Some kind of of failure? Are you just this big failure? Like, what (laughs) are you? And then I realized I've got a, and it doesn't come naturally to me, but it's like, so I'm a best-selling author, blah, blah, blah. I have a podcast, 30 million downloads. And then Americans are like, all right, I'll pay attention to you. Good for you. You got something to say. You do that elsewhere in the world, you're dead in the water. Dead in the water. Mm -hmm. 1,000%. 1,000%. You do not talk about accolades, accomplishments. It just comes across egotistical. And I think there's part of that that's good. I think yes. I think healthy humility is great. But I also think there's something to be said about accomplishing amazing things. And so that shouldn't be kind of, you shouldn't be looked down upon for that. Yeah. Yeah. How did you respond when someone said, well, you won the lottery with push pay and that'll never happen again? <laughs> I tried not to slap them. No, I... Uh, <laughs> 
uh, you know, moments like that can stick with you because you you can carry those words because uh, if you're in between in, in between season, mm-hmm. you can easily have that um, buyer's remorse of what did I do and that those feelings right. of regret and maybe they're right. And you just have to work through it and realize, you know what? That's coming from a place of envy. That's coming from a place of jealousy. That's coming from a place of um, I don't understand. And so immediate reaction is maybe you're right. And, oh, my gosh, you, that was a really amazing experience. What happened again? And then I think you just take some time to really process and realize, you know what? That's just that's just someone expressing their own perhaps um, lack of satisfaction for their own world and putting that onto you. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be a bit of a collective consciousness sometimes. You know, I know in Canada, we've we've grown up in the the shadow of the U.S. And I'm really proud of my country. We've done a lot of great things, but there is that. So what was so attractive to you about America as a foreigner? So my uh, first experience in America, I was working as a canoe instructor at a summer camp in New Jersey. Very <laughs> random. And so that, that is random. Okay. It, it's about as random as it gets. My podcast okay. producer, Carly Vowinski, will love that. She is the chief ambassador for the state of New Jersey. That's where she okay. lives. She just loves Jersey. Okay. Oh, love continue. it. There you go. Continue. Love it. Carly, so, gotcha. Um, <laughs> I think so. When I when I went there and uh, you, you train to be a lifeguard and you train to be a canoe instructor, and everyone's working out in between the training sessions and they're getting up early and they're like sprinting to get to the, the different meetings. And I'm like, in New Zealand, we would be, turn up late, we would be relaxed, we'd probably want to lay on the beach and like sun ourselves for a little bit. I was just like astounded at just the drive or the maybe the ambition might be the right word of just let's go get it. And so that was my first foray into it. And then once I moved over here in Seattle, which was about 11 years ago now, you're just astounded at um, just the sheer amount of people trying to rise to do something of, of meaning. And so you, you feel like I'm one in 300 million now instead of one in 4 million in New Zealand. I better, I better give this thing my very all so that I get noticed. So it's, quite, it's almost the complete opposite. Don't get noticed versus do your very best so that you do make an impact, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you and Chris Heaslip meet? You've worked in a couple of companies together, founded Leader together, and he's a fellow Kiwi. He is a fellow Kiwi, yeah. Although he thinks he was born an American just in the wrong country. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but Chris ran the youth camp when I was 15, when a buddy of mine at school dragged me along to church. And so oh, uh, wow. he ran the camp. He was the pseudo youth pastor, youth leader at the time. Uh, but he dragged me along. Uh, never been in church, never heard of church, didn't know nothing about it. No one in my family, uh, you know, that's just not, not our background. And so I uh, got hooked into the church there. And then seven years later, Chris and I really didn't have much to do with each other. Seven years later, mm-hmm. someone told me that he's starting a company. And then the rest became history. Now we work together for the last 11 years or so. Yeah, and we've had Chris on the podcast a couple of times talking about his journey at PushPay and then yeah. exiting the company and burnout and the whole deal. So yeah. that was a rocket ride. I mean, PushPay was a rocket ride. And you talk about it in your new book too, Management is Dead. But like, give me some of the, the highlights from your perspective about that rocket ride to you know, becoming a, a very large company very quickly. What did that do to you, Matt? So I I joined as, I think I was employee number five, somewhere in there, mm. over the course of about two and a half years, ended up leading a team of about 130 people. And so by the time I left, I think we had four or 500 staff. So that journey, it's just quintessential growing pains. And so for me, never being in a startup environment, never been in a leadership environment and now you're leading teams of teams it's very isolating it's very lonely it's very um it it creates a lot of imposter syndrome it creates a lot of i'm not qualified i'm not experienced i shouldn't be here someone's going to catch me and you're just kind of putting a seatbelt on buckling in just hanging on for dear life (laughs) so Mm -hmm. i find i really feel like i was just given this unique opportunity and um i didn't give up and my whole trajectory and how I approached even just general work and things has changed dramatically since those early days where we were just giving it everything. Well, and I think that's one of the challenges is, you know, I wanted to ask you because very few of us, myself included, come out with a Harvard MBA. I mean, I did history, law, and theology, a lot of university, but like I had no idea how to lead anything. 
like not a clue. I didn't know how to lead people. I didn't need, know how to lead a growing organization. Within a few years, I was leading the biggest church I'd ever been a part of or seen or known. And now I'm the leader. And, you know, you're young when this happens too. So talk about how you learned, because, you know, your book is so honest about your failures, your mistakes and all that. But you, you mentioned imposter syndrome. I think a lot of us struggle with that at different seasons. How did your unpreparedness as a young leader show up in the first years of your leadership journey? Because I'm with you on that. Yeah. I, isn't there something to be said about naivety, though? That, that, oh, yeah. That's, that sense of ignorance is bliss. If you don't know that you're doing anything wrong, uh-huh. just, right? And so I did, I also didn't get an MBA. I'm, I dropped out of college three times. So I'm, <laughs> I'm three times successful at failing. And um, so several moments, one of them being, uh, you know, when you say something in a, in a one-on-one with somebody and they start crying and you're like, oh my gosh, how did I offend this person? And you're like, oh, wait a second. People don't like to be talked to the way that I like to be talked to. You have to learn to be a chameleon. You have to learn to adjust how you discuss things. And so moments like that, I remember the first time I did, um, they asked me to do a talk in front of the leadership team. And we've all been there. You know, the first time someone asks you to do some public speaking when that just doesn't come naturally to you, dry mouth, stuttering over words, telling stories that make absolutely no sense. Um, I remember someone coming up to me afterwards and saying, you really tried, (laughs) right? Like that's about as good as the compliment it would get. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm the, the case study for growing pains in those early days you're thrust in. But I think, like I mentioned, that naivety is maybe a strength because you don't know what you don't know. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I've thought about that from time to time. Say more about naivete because I think, I think you're right. It is an advantage. And one of the disadvantages I have now, having led for 30 years, is I'm like, oh, I've been down that road. Don't do it. But it can really make you cautious, scared, irrelevant, fearful, hesitant to change. Whereas naivety is like, you don't know what you don't know. So yeah. you just go for it, right? There's an eagerness attached to naivety. There's a um, there's a, a lack of risk averse. You're just going to pursue new things and, and try things that perhaps you wouldn't do if you had the experience, quote unquote. Um, but you end up putting your foot in your mouth. I mean, we all've got, we've all got stories like that when um, maybe you're in a, a hiring conversation. They're like, you know, you're not supposed to ask that question. You're like, oh, I didn't know that. No one ever told me. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you're having a performance conversation with someone and they're like, you know, you're really not supposed to be that blunt. It's like, oh, okay, I need the playbook, please. So uh, isn't that the fun way to learn though? I'd much rather learn that way. Oh yeah, yeah. And you really, you really don't know. I've learned a lot of this. So speak to some young leaders. We have a lot of young leaders listening to this podcast. How would you encourage them to use their naivete? And then when would you say to them, hey, watch it, it's got some hard edges too. Any any coaching for young leaders listening? So I think a really important place to start on this conversation is where do bad leaders come from? Because I think it's unfair for us to think that a bad leader wakes up that day, or at least just say 99% of leaders don't wake up that day thinking, how do I make my people's lives terrible today? Mm-hmm. They just don't mm-hmm. think that. So why do we have a huge part of the workforce, both in the workplace and within ministry, where people have Sunday scaries not looking forward to coming to work on Monday because of the relationship with their leader? The leader's not intentionally doing that. So I think it's because they're not equipped. The naivety Mm. thing. They've never actually been shown the way. They've never actually been shown the path. Or number two, they're not being intentional. They don't realize that them not checking in on a personal front or not providing feedback on a more coaching front, the damage that that's doing long-term. So I like to think about it like this. If uh, if you're getting put into leadership for the very first time, you've probably been doing something really well up until that point. So you've mm-hmm. probably been a top performer, quote unquote. Top performers really get difficult feedback. They really get pulled aside and said, hey, I need to talk to you about something really important. They haven't had the hard conversations. They haven't been given disciplinary warnings. They haven't been put on a coaching plan or a performance plan. And then they're thrust into leadership. And we tell this top performer who's never actually had that conversation from the other side, hey, go do this with others. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of creating a sink or swim environment, if that makes sense. And I think there needs to be much more handholding when you're in that young, first-time, early leader stage that I've been in, where you don't feel like you're having to make it up all the time as as you go, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's a really good point because I think that made what made you successful as a solo artist, so to speak, you know, it's like, great. I was great at sales. I was great at whatever you happen to be doing project management. When suddenly you move into leadership or management, um, the thing that made you great is not necessarily the thing that will make you a great leader, right? True. You're almost, it's that Peter principle. You're promoted to the level of your incompetence. True. True. And um, you find that it's a very different skill set. Mm-hmm. It's a very different skill set to even teach the thing that you were doing previously or to coach that thing you were doing previously. Um, and then you, you're you doing things for the very, very first time and there's going to be a growth period. And one of the things that I like to think about is this idea of I need to stay six months ahead of growth, six months ahead of where we're going next. Because if I get given an opportunity to step into new responsibility or new leadership today, my team's going to be waiting six months for me to catch up. And so you never want to be in that position where you're the one that your personal growth is stunting the growth of the team. You know, John Maxwell calls that the law of the lid. You don't Mm -hmm. want to be the lid or the cap on your team. And so I just, I guess, became obsessed with this idea of staying ahead of that growth and never being that, that cap or that bottleneck. But then you, you become a little psychotic, but I like that. I think that's good. (laughs) How did you do that? How did you stay six months ahead? That's an intriguing concept. So, um, I love asking the question to peers, colleagues, friends, family, whoever's closest to you, what are my gaps? What are my blind spots? And just be brutally honest. So one of the things that I try to do on a quarterly basis is something we call, uh, we, we stole it, called the T3B3. What are Matt's top three skills? What are Matt's bottom three skills? Hmm. And you do it in a you do it in a 360 degree feedback. So ask your manager, ask your peers, ask your direct reports. And if you make it anonymous, which is a brave thing to do because people will tell you what you don't want to hear. But if you make it anonymous, you hear all the things. So mm-hmm. practically speaking, staying six months ahead of growth, here's an example. When I sent my first one out as a manager, someone said to me, Matt, you need to learn how to be a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. Wow. So no one's going to come up and say that to your face. And if they do, be friends with that person for life. But someone anonymously said, Matt, learn how to be a scalpel, not a sledgehammer, because what do I do? I'm like, oh, I love it when people are direct with me. I think it's fantastic. And so are you an Enneagram 8? I am, yeah. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I get it. It's a, just yeah. tell me, just tell just me. Just tell me. You're not going to offend me. Hit me and between the eyes. I'm fine yeah. with it. Yeah. So moments like that, it's like, okay, I have to learn now how to be a much more... Um, I need to weave the conversation as opposed to coming in like that velvet sledgehammer. Otherwise, I'm just going to distance people in the process. So the the driving factor was get the feedback, use that as a motivator to push you to work on those blind spots, work on those weaknesses and grow your way out of it. um, So that by the the time you're in that position of leadership, it's not too late. What is, if if you're willing to go there, what is some of the most brutal feedback you've gotten? When you ask for the top three, bottom three. Yeah. Uh, I'll share a few. I got lots. (laughs) I'll share a few. I'll share a few. So um, I think the most encouraging positive feedback you get is when it's third party. When someone says, hey, I was just chatting with Kerry and and Kerry was telling me that you blank. That's always the most Mm. rewarding. I feel like positive reinforcement because you know that they don't want anything from you, right? Yeah. But the inverse of that is also true. When someone says something to you and you're not in the room and it's third party, third party constructive feedback, that hurts the most. So I remember one in particular. Someone came into my office. This was not even that long ago, maybe two years ago. And uh, they came into my office. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm not great. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, what's on your mind? And they're like, no, I'm okay. I'm like, oh, uh, sure. Uh, are you sure? Do you want to share with me what's, what's happening? They're like, no, someone told me not to process things with you. Like, <laughs> true story, true story. I'm like, tell me more. And they're like, yeah, someone said that Matt just likes to make decisions. He doesn't like to process things. So don't process things with Matt. Wow. Ouch. So now, now it's like, I'm known behind closed doors as the guy that doesn't process things well. So you better and believe. Do you think of yourself as a decent processor? Um, probably not. Probably not, but it's one of those things where you don't realize um, I can work on it and I'm not that bad versus how people actually feel when you don't process things with you. Because I know that I love to jump to decision making, but I think people are like, oh, Matt's just wanting to jump to action. That's great. When actually they're going, I don't need you to solve my problems. I mean, now, now this is turning into like a marital conversation, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't need you to solve. I don't need you to solve the problem. Right. So right. that one hurt because I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, that's how people would describe me behind closed doors. That was a tough one. 
That hurts. You know, uh, you're taking me back to 23 years ago. I can remember exactly where I was. And the guy said, well, you know, Carrie, you don't suffer fools lightly. Like if someone makes a mistake, they get mm-hmm. one, they get one strike, not three. And I was like, so that's a strength, <laughs> but yeah, it's right. also a big weak. Wait a minute. There's a good side to that. There's also a really hard side to that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Another you're going to say something else. Another one. Yeah. Another one that came to mind um, was um, if you're too sarcastic, people won't take you seriously. Mm. Or if you're too funny, people won't take you seriously. So I, I'm a big, big believer in the, the, the thought of if you're not laughing, you're crying. Like if you're going to deal with difficult things, just take every, take, take everything kind of with a grain of salt, be open-handed about it and don't things take things too seriously. And with that can come this almost ambivalence where you're being too frivolous and you're not acting like things are really important when they are. And so I realized that if I turn everything to a joke, then nothing serious. That one hurt too. Hmm. Now, is that cultural? Because I've spent more time in Australia than New Zealand, but I've been in New Zealand twice. We're going back to both countries early next year. Uh, Super excited for that. But like the, uh, I'm thinking more of Aussies, but Aussies would just like, they joke about everything, right? Is it same with, with, uh, with Kiwis? 100% the same. 100% the same. We just just joke about everything, nothing serious. Yeah. Yeah. Water off a duck's back. But that's important culturally because you're not in New Zealand you're you're in Dallas or Seattle or New Jersey and they're like what <laughs> and it, and it's one thing if you're a jokey around kind of a clown sales manager that's one thing but you don't need that from your CEO right you want your CEO to enjoy what they do you want them to be relatable you want them to um, you want them to be transparent and vulnerable potentially but you don't want them to be the clown of the the team the clown's reserved for someone else and so mm-hmm. You just have to learn to sit in your hands and bite your tongue and maybe not tell that joke that you think's funny, even though everyone's laughing, but they're probably only laughing because you're the boss. <laughs> well, and we should we should give a bit of a spoiler alert. I mean, we're talking about this journey because I think a lot of us have very sputtery journeys. But you know, congratulations, you won best CEO in Dallas last year. So thank you. You've you've come a long way, which leads me to my next question. Because I think there's a lot of young leaders who you know, along their journey in their 20s or 30s, they get a bad report. They feel like quitting. They keep going. But you get 10 or 20 or you're like, I thought I was past this. And then what caused you not to give up? Well, I think that's the number one mark of a leader. If you're going to pick anything, choose the thing to not give up. So I'll come back to your question about winning that award because it was very surreal and a very humbling moment. But, um, when I started Leader, Chris and I, so Chris was the CEO at Pushpay, he's now the chairman of Leader. We sat down and he asked me for an eight-year commitment. So we sat down for a coffee. I remember where we were, we we're in Redmond and Washington. And he said, hey, if we're going to do this thing together, the number one thing that executives get wrong in high-growth environments, that leaders get wrong in high-growth environments, is they just throw in the towel. Yeah. And so no matter what, I just want to know that there's an eight-year commitment between us, that no matter what happens, you don't give up. So for me, I'm coming in with this base level of trust with Chris that he can boot me out the door. I mean, I'm going to claw my way and try and pull my way back in, but I refuse to give up. It's just not an option. It's not on the table. Mm. And and I, I there's a few places that comes from. One of it was when we moved to push when we moved to Seattle and Pushpay, um, our visas were tied to the company, and so if we missed our number and I got fired, I get deported. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Right. The consequences of failure are pretty huge at that point. I don't just go, oh, I'm going to go find another job. That didn't work. So now that I'm at leader, there is no option for me to even consider throwing in the towel because I made that already baseline agreement with Chris. And yeah. so now it's just this, this, this thing that's not even on my, on my mind. Uh, I don't even, it doesn't even enter my, my framework. Hmm. Um, and then the, the thing that I encourage a lot of leaders with is um, leadership matters most when things are hard. I think it's, it's, it's a little too frivolous for me to say that leadership, that leadership's easy when you're winning or leadership's easy when you're on the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. Leadership's needed most when you're going through the rut. Leadership's needed most when your team or you are having a hard time. And so that's when you have to go back to those first principles. So, you know, I think like many tech companies, leaders going through a difficult time right now because we're just having to navigate the economy and what does this mean and how do we make High sure- interest that, rates, right? the whole deal. Yeah. Oh, the whole deal. 
And so I have to continually have that in a, lo- in a monologue for myself of let's go back to core principles. Let's go back to why we started in the first place. Let's go back to the reality that no matter what, I will never give up. And so now it forces me into action of solving the problem instead of falling into a what was me mindset, which I, I've done so many times in my leadership. I don't know if you can relate to that. Oh yeah, self pity and I. Uh, we've we've spent too much time together, and I'm in a good season right now. But like, man, if things start to hit too long, I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? And I never get it right. I, I get it. So yeah. if you were to look at CEO of the year, Matt, and then go back a decade, fifteen years to when you were just starting out, what are some of the biggest differences a person would see in you between then and now? I hope. I hope they see a wildly different person. I actually think one of the the worst insults you can hear is when someone sees you after a few years and say things like, oh, Matt, it's so good to see you. You haven't changed a bit. You're exactly the same. (laughs) That grinds my gears. I I don't want to be that same person. So I hope that they would say, I'm far better at processing, back to that earlier comment. I'm much more tactful in the way that I would share difficult feedback. I'm maybe not less honest, but I'm maybe less blunt. I would hope that they would say that I've become more empathetic over the years. I think that's another challenge of leaders. We are we are given so many problems and difficult situations to solve. And it's very easy to tend towards cynicism as opposed to empathy. And so as opposed to hardening ourselves to the situation and next time it happens, we're like, oh, I've seen this before. This is no big deal. Actually becoming more empathetic is important. So I would hope people would say that too. Um, I think every year I want to be sort of a, a, a reinvention of the T3B3 that I got a year ago so that that no longer shows up on my next T3B3. You can almost mm-hmm. become obsessed with it. Um, that's that's the, the way that I've been processing through it at least is kind of running ahead of what my next feedback request is going to be and making sure that it doesn't show up again. Let's talk about the T3B3 because I, I think a lot of people have done 360s. I've done a few they tend to be involved, lengthy, multiple questions. They take some kind of consultant to interpret. And they're a big deal, which is why they don't happen enough. Right. T3B3 seems more agile and flexible than that. Can you just walk us through a process on how to do you? And by the way, if you missed that earlier, top three, bottom three. So you're asking people, give me my top three, what? Skills, gifts, performance, exactly. and my bottom three. Okay. So can you walk us through, because this sounds simple and scalable, and if it's simple, you're going to do it regularly. If it's complicated and expensive, you're going to do it once a decade or every five years or something. So talk about how to implement T3B3. So I, I really like the concept that you're not sandwiching the difficult feedback. I think that's often what we get wrong. Right. Where, hey, Kerry, you're doing amazing. You're such an incredible podcaster. Also, you talk quite a lot, but man, you're great at podcasting. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. We sandwich feedback too much. So I I love this idea that it's short, that it's sweet, that there's bullet points, that it's Mm. final. And um, uh, I like the idea that you you have to recognize both aspects, that you're not just asking to someone, tell me how great I am, but you're also Mm. not being a masochist and asking someone, just tell me all the things that I have to do better. One of the things that we talk about at Leader is we care enough to be candid. And so I think the first thing, if you want a T3B3 culture or if you want a feedback culture in general, Start from a place of recognizing that the reason you're doing this is because you care deeply about that person. Mm-hmm. Providing feedback about them to a third party, that's just that's not feedback, that's gossip. Talking about them behind closed doors, that doesn't help them. Sharing it with them directly to their face, that is uncomfortable. And the only people that are going to do that are people that care about you. So if you can start with that place of, I'm only doing this because I want to see you succeed, it almost gives you permission to then say everything that you need to say in the B3. And so I do it quarterly. I think that's a pretty good um, cadence. I think yearly, it's probably a bit too long. And I think monthly, people are really scraping at the barrel of things that you're doing well, of things you're doing poorly, and maybe you won't get different themes. Uh, and then, like I mentioned earlier, if you really want to do it, go anonymous. Uh, mm-hmm. you'll, hear all, you'll hear all the things. So specifically, I know Leader has software for this and this. Is that integrated in your software or can it be as simple as a Google Doc that you send out? I don't know how you do that anonymously, but what is the process for doing this? 
we used I used to use Google Forms because you can make those anonymous uh, or SurveyMonkey or any of those systems. Uh, we've now integrated it as a part of Leader, so you can do that within the, within Leader as well. But I would find any form of anonymous survey tools um, that right. allow you give you that ability. Um, SurveyMonkey, Google Google yep. Forms, etc. How many people like if you have a small team? I have a very small team. Um, anonymous can be a little bit challenging with a small team. Any advice for people who have? five or fewer people on their team or 10 or fewer people on their team? Yeah, if you have two people, it's like, well, this is either Bob or Susie. This is exactly. the <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I think if you have 10 people or more, um, that sounds about right. Yeah. 10 people or more yeah. sounds about right. Any, any smaller than that, you're probably going to be playing the detective game. Well, I'm looking at this person's punctuation and I'm looking at the way that they said my name. I don't uh-huh. know who that is. That I doesn't do it to anybody. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but there also is nothing wrong with the, the good old fashioned, hey, Carrie, do you mind if we sit down? Can you give me some feedback? Um, yeah. If, if, yeah. if your team's small enough or anonymous doesn't make sense uh, and you want to go right for the jugular, if you will, I think that's fine too. Mm-hmm. I think it was Paula Ferris who gave me this question, might've originated with her. I don't know, but tell me something you think I won't want to hear. I'm like, Oh, that's a killer question. That's Cause it's not like, do you have anything? It's like, no, tell me something, Matt, yeah. you think I won't want to hear. That's My, such a great question. The one I love that the one I heard recently that I've been using all the time is um, you get the feedback and then you say, what's the last 5%? What's the oh. thing that you're withholding that you want to share, but you're not sure if you should. That's when it gets That's really good. <laughs> That's good. It's like Michael Bungay Stanier. He uh, he says, "Okay, what's on your mind, and what else?" And what it's else? amazing what you hear. Now, it's not a T three B three thing, but it's yeah. amazing yeah. what you hear, like that last five percent. And what else? Yeah. And what else? Because yeah. that's usually people tell you what they think you want to hear, and then you're and what else? It's like, well, actually, now that you're interested, blah blah blah, and then <laughs> you get it right. So I uh, um, my go ahead. my. One of my mentors, Ross, uh, he does this thing where he goes, hey, Matt, how you doing? I'm good, Ross. How you doing, Matt? I'm like, I'm good. He's like, how you really doing? I don't know, Ross. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that extra level, isn't there? Uh-huh. It's important to keep digging. That's good. Okay, so you talk about, and I think this is tied to your journey, you know, from starting out, no idea what you're doing, imposter syndrome, to CEO of the year, which congratulations again. But you talk about the leadership spectrum, and it's kind of going from like lost manager, best friend manager, bulldozer, leader to leader. I probably missed some things in there, but can you fill us in on that spectrum? Because I think it's very descriptive, Matt. And it's important to talk about this without using names, because anytime you think bulldozer manager or best friend manager, you're like, oh, I know that person, or uh-huh, you're thinking, that's uh-huh. me. So yeah, we, we like to think... Um, because managers, when you're working with people in leadership, it's not as black and white. It's not as binary. It's not as simple. I like this idea that it's on a spectrum. So we like to start with this idea that there's a lost manager. That's the person we're talking about earlier. They don't know what they don't know. Maybe they've just been put into leadership. They haven't been equipped. They're not setting out to be malicious. They just don't know the right way to lead. What The next quadrant or the next idea is this idea of the the bulldozer manager that's kind of what I was sharing earlier about me, this tendency to just be a sledgehammer, to just say things as they come to mind. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got this best friend manager or the highly relational manager. And we work for those people too. Those are the folks that you have a really good time at work. You have a great uh, enjoying atmosphere. Everyone's laughing and having a good time, but not a lot of work is being done. And uh, so, Michael Scott. Michael Scott. <laughs> trying to exactly be the best, what it is. Best friend manager. Best yeah. friend manager. Uh, and so... What you want to do is have a mixture of the best friend and the bulldozer. In certain situations, you have to be a bulldozer. In certain situations, you have to be the best friend. And so I like the idea of treating it as that spectrum because you have to have both ends of that spectrum at different times with different people to be to be an effective leader. And so when we think about, okay, how do I equip someone that's uh, currently maybe tends towards that highly relational, that isn't really great at having those difficult conversations that isn't really great at giving that tough feedback. Maybe we need to sit down and role play it with them. Maybe we're talking to the lost manager and maybe in that situation, actually what they need to do is just be given, they need to be equipped. They need to be given a, a process on um, what does my day-to-day really look like as a first-time leader? So I, I like the spectrum idea because you're bucketing people into these different categories where you recognize, oh, I tend 
to be a bulldozer. So I need to focus more on the relational side or I tend to be relational. So I have to focus more on the bulldozer side. Yeah. Helpful. Anything else about your journey from startup leader to CEO? I can go so many different directions. Uh I think, um, leadership, when you step into leadership for the first time, it's a, it's a steep learning curve because you really don't know what you're getting into. I, I don't know if I've ever run into someone that says, this is so much easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> have you met that person? <laughs> uh, no, I have not. I am not. And I am not that person. No. Yeah. And so I think coming in eyes wide open is important and recognizing this might be the most challenging thing that you've done. But um, I would encourage folks out there if you are stepping into the leadership for that first time, uh, maybe that is coming around the corner. I wouldn't find those blind spots, find the things that make you uncomfortable and take on stretch projects. So I touched on the public speaking one earlier. Any opportunity that you can do to take on public speaking opportunities and stand in front of an audience and just put your foot in your mouth. I wish there was a better way to get better at it. I'm just not sure that there is. And so... Uh, find those those areas of weak spots, those things that don't come naturally to you and just dive right in and, and, and sign yourself up for it. Uh, the, th- the times that I've grown the fastest is when I've been put in situations that I'm way over my head. I don't know if you relate to that as well. It's this idea of there's no way I'm capable of doing that. There's no way I'm the right person to do this, but someone instills that belief and it really forces you to get out of your shell and get out of your box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm constantly in areas where I really don't know what I'm doing. Nobody prepared me for this. Yeah. yeah. Um so Seth Godin was on the podcast recently and he talked about management being not enough. That what you really need is leadership. And management is dead is kind of a hot take that you've got. Tell us more about what you mean when you say management is dead. When you walk into our office, the first thing you're going to see on the wall is people want to be led and developed, not managed. Mm. And if you're if you're doing any sort of research or even uh, from just personal experience in the workplace today, I think some of our old school styles of this sort of more autocratic style of leadership, top down of do as I say, not as I do, it's becoming completely ineffective. It's obsolete. Management's dead. And so the idea now is, I believe that leadership development and developing people is actually the gateway to getting the most performance anyway. If we Mm. start with trying to squeeze the juice out of the lemon, in other words, if we start by just focusing on how do I get more efficient, more effective by just being a hammer, ultimately your long-term effects of that are going to be far more diminished than if you started with the place of where are you at today? Where do you need to be? And how can I help you get there? This idea of development, this idea of care, this idea of equipping. And so we like to talk about, we're here to turn managers into coaches because we know that if we can help you to coach to become more effective, ultimately that's a win-win scenario. Um, The idea that we can go back to the hierarchical style of here's the OKRs and do what I say because I'm the boss, because I have the title, because I have the experience, I have the resume. Maybe it's a generational thing. I just think that play is extremely ineffective today. I just don't think it works. And I think you're, it's falling on deaf ears, especially for the younger generations. And I would put myself in that bucket. We just don't respond to it. It's just, hmm. we just don't look up to that. So that's, that's the, the core sentiment behind it is this idea on focus far more on people development. You're going to get the outcome that you desire on the management side anyway. So a lot of people would say, totally agree. It seems impossible. Like, you know, I learned management. That's what they still teach. What is at the heart of people development? It's making the time to sit with people and let them know that they feel cared for and developed. So uh, I'll get a clear example of this is we have a, a huge focus on not only just running a really effective and tactical team meetings, but really investing and taking the time to to care for employees through a one-on-one or just through a check-in, at least on a bi-weekly basis. So I get the sentiment that this doesn't seem probable. I get the sentiment that this seems altruistic or it's too hard or it's too much time. But I would also push back to say, do we really not have enough time every other week to sit one-on-one with people face-to-face across from a table or over Zoom to just ask some simple questions like, how are you really doing? Like Ross, 
Like we need that once in a while and we need it in the workplace too. Um, I think it's a, it's a shame when we get to this point where we have so many people in our team, we have so many direct reports that we don't have time for them. Or said another way, I've heard one of my pastors used to say, if, you, if you're too busy for people, you're too busy. Hmm. And so I almost think that's a bit of an excuse to say, oh, I get leadership, but management seems easier. It might be easier in the short term, but in the long run, I think you're just pushing folks away. Okay, that's uh, that's really interesting, you know, because I think a lot of people get uncomfortable. I have a friend of mine, Jeff Henderson, who who taught me years ago. He said, you know, uh, ask people how they're doing before you ask them what they're doing. I think that's a really, really good approach. So get us started. What are some of the basics, the principles of people development? I think you have to start with that, that consistent check-in moment, the safe space, I call it. So every other week, create a space where that employee, that person on your team feels like that's their meeting, not yours. And How long is, is that check-in? 30 to 60 minutes, depending oh, on... wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like a five-minute hallway, hey, how are you doing? Um, the, the, uh, hey, I've got an open-door policy, right? I think some, some of the bulldozer managers, that's their, that's their response to conversations like this. Oh, I've got an open-door policy. Anyone can come talk to, to me anytime that I want, but they don't. And they never do. Yeah. And they never do. And, and if you're like me, you've learned your face doesn't have an open door policy, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> your door might be open, True. but your face is not. So start with that one-on-one. Just commit to every week, make that a priority. And what you're going to end up doing is letting your team know that they're the priority. So that, that has to be the, the foundation. The next step is uh, every employee being recognized and uh, led with, by their unique strengths. So right at the beginning of the conversation, it was kind of fun. You said, are you an eight? Right? So you know enough about me to know, okay, Matt's an eight. That means Matt likes to be challenged. That means Matt's like to be pushed. That means Matt likes to have deep, meaningful debates where it's fiery, but no one's getting offended. Like that's eights. And so totally. if you're going to recognize people with their unique strengths, you have to understand who they are. So doing a personality assessment, Enneagram's great, Working Genius, Myers-Briggs, DISC, any of those to just give you a baseline of what your team is like. So one-on-ones, unique strengths, feedback culture. We've already touched on that. Uh, Number four, having clear and documented goals. If you're a visionary leader, you're great at setting goals, perhaps not so good at letting your team not forget those goals. And so Mm -hmm. making sure that they're front and center and documented and people know and have clarity. And then finally, folks having a development plan, which PDPs and personal development plans, this conversation is, it can become very, um, as, as a leader, you can roll your eyes. Here we go again. I've heard this before. It's not that complicated. Where does this person want to go and how can you help them get there? How can everybody have a best next step? So it's one-on-ones, unique strengths, feedback, goals, and development plans. That's the framework for creating a development culture. Can we break down the one-on-ones? Because yes. I think there's two kinds of leaders. There's the kind of leader, and I think pastors are particularly... Um, prone to this, I guess I would say. I'm trying not to cast it in a negative light, but you know, the person who just spends the whole time going, well, how are you really? And then you become the counselor. You be, you're the best friend. You're the relationship, but you don't get anything done, right? So if you look at low performance cultures, that is often the type of management. On the other hand, you know, you've got this fast growth, high charging, how you doing, Matt? Meanwhile, you know, you and your wife are this close to divorce, you're exhausted, on the verge of burnout, uh, your credit cards are maxed out, whatever. And it's like, yeah, good, he's good. Okay, so Matt, here's our objectives. Boom, 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 more, 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 right? And you're you're not that. So what, what like structure that one hour one-on-one, what does it look like? So you almost just laid it out. Uh, okay. Because you have to have both ends of that spectrum. So hmm. uh, it, we, t- we like to talk about is every one-on-one should have three aspects. It should have care, it should have development, and it should have performance. And all three should be discussed at varying degrees of, of time throughout that conversation. Care, development, performance. Care, okay. development, performance. So Got it. does Kerry feel cared for? Have I given him feedback to help him to continue to grow and develop towards the next thing that we're working on? And then performance, what are the goals? What are the milestones? How can I help unblock you? those sorts of things. And so if you're a more pastoral, the performance conversation is one you're going to just have to front foot and start to make a, re- a, me- a regular part of your rhythms. And you'll be surprised at, and, and maybe even shocked at how much people crave clarity. 
I want to know how I'm doing. I really do. Um, and then if you're the bulldozer manager, don't just ask the how are you question as a checkbox. Guilty of that for sure. What do you mean they don't feel cared for? I asked them how their anniversary was. Yes, but their anniversary was three months ago. So <laughs> exactly. So care development performance. If you can find the, the perfect recipe to fit all three of those in that feel organic, that feel natural, and that are consistent, you're going to start to experience really effective one-on-ones. I'm going to say, I'm going to guess, and tell me if I'm wrong, and then we can take it from the other perspective. I'm going to guess more people are hesitant to hold people accountable than the opposite. That more people would be like, oh, Matt seems to be doing okay. He's a good guy. Huh, he feels good about me. He likes me as a boss. Yeah. Are we hitting our goals? Not really. Okay. All right. Well, do better next time, Matt. Thanks. See ya. How would you coach somebody who's not particularly comfortable giving feedback, holding people accountable, and uh, having that hard conversation? Uh, so, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier of if you're that top performer and now you're put in a position of leadership and no one's ever had to have that with you before, what's the playbook? So, um, here's, here's one of the ways I would think about it. Lencioni has this line, vulnerability builds trust. Mm. If you go into a conversation and you're trying to have a performance conversation for the very first time with no trust, it's going to fall completely on deaf ears. It's just going to fall completely on deaf ears. So how I would approach that conversation, if I'm sitting down with me, I would say, Hey Matt, uh, I've been in your shoes before. I know what it's like to not be where you wanted to be when it comes to the projects that we said we would deliver on time, the number that you said you would accomplish. I've been there. I know what it feels like. I know how isolating it can be. I know how lonely it can be. I know that there's a lot of anxiety that gets wrapped up in that. And I remember that the first time, every time I had to sit down with my manager, I thought I was going to get fired. I don't know where you're at on that spectrum of you're feeling totally anxious and you're going to get fired or you're completely oblivious and you don't know where you stand. I was hoping today we could have a conversation about what is it going to look like for us to get marginally better towards the goals that we have to accomplish as a team. And by the way, I'm right there with you and I'm in your corner. That's paraphrased, Mm. but starting from a place of vulnerability that you're not coming down on them, that you're shoulder to shoulder and also sharing that you've been there before. So they're not alone and also sharing, Hey, I'm not firing you. I think often when people that comes up for the first time, they're like, where is this going? So I think some mixture of those is a healthy place to start. That's good. That's a helpful coaching. Um, and then how do you do the follow-up well? Like, cause that, that first meeting is easier than the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth. Give us some tips in that area. One of, one of my other T3B3s that I've received is uh, me learning the difference between what I say and what people hear. So I think I'm big fancy leader. I've walked out of that conversation. I said everything I needed to say and they got it. And then you find out later, they didn't understand a word that you were saying. They thought you were <laughs> talking about something completely separate. So this might sound heavy handed, but I'm a big believer in recaps. At the end of a conversation, recap the conversation to that individual. Hey, here's the things that we talked about. Here are the gaps. Here's what we're going to work on. Here's what I'm going to do this week. Here's what you're going to do this week. And we'll check back in next week and see how we perform. Do you agree? And get a yes reply. So I send that to an email on any uh, any conversation that I feel like I'm going to need a reference again in the future, good, bad, or otherwise. I'm a big believer in the recap culture. Or have them send it to you. And that that ask sounds scary, but it really isn't. So if, if Kerry takes the time to sit down with Matt and say those awkward words, hey, I've got some feedback for you. Do you mind if I share it? And mm-hmm. Matt hears it and responds. I think it's completely realistic for Kerry to say, hey, do you mind sending me a quick recap after this to make sure that uh, I, I was articulate and I said the right things and that this made sense mm-hmm. to you? So if you can get a recap culture, the next conversation gets easier because you just pull up the, co- the recap. Hey, remember when we talked about the dates, the deadlines, the goals, and the things that I was going to do and the things that you were going to do? How are we measuring up against those? Now the recap becomes the bad guy. The documentation mm. becomes the, the thing that we can point to as opposed to as me constantly coming down on you with it. So that's some of the practical ways. Great idea. And you would put that in writing via email or a Slack message or a sauna or whatever you're using. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Great. Yeah. Wow. Okay. A couple of other questions for you. You mentioned generational change and you, you hinted at this earlier. You said younger generations, they just don't like to be managed top down, et cetera, et cetera. We now have five generations in the workplace. 
and soon maybe six. I don't know. Um, Because alpha is coming up pretty quickly too. So any advice for managing the different generations, what the different characteristics are, and how to handle that? I'm really passionate about this topic. So I'm a millennial. I'm firmly right in the middle there. Um, But when I was coming up, the the overarching narrative was millennials are entitled. They don't want to work hard. Millennials just turn up to work and they expect everything to be handed to them. That was the general perspective that I felt from Gen Gen Xs. And that was kind of the pervasive narrative. Now I'm finding that the narrative is flipped to now Gen Zs are the bad guys. And we're constantly talking about how all Gen Zs want is side hustles and all they want to do is work on things and pet projects that they care about. I think the first place we have to start is let's just stop throwing the next generation under the bus. Like, <laughs> right? hey, listen, boomers threw Gen Xers under the bus. It was Did like, what's really? wrong with you guys? You don't know what to do. Yeah, etc. So I'm barely Gen X. Uh, I'm sort of in between. I was born the year that Gen X started. Yeah. and uh, But I remember being very resentful of boomers in my college years. It's like, you guys, you took all the jobs. The economy's not good. And, you know, we were a little later to launch than boomers were. And they looked down on us as slackers and you know, lazy and the whole deal, entitled. Mm-hmm. What is that trickle down? Why, why is that? Is it just a displacement of blame? You know, I think, I think I've, I've had a few of these conversations on the podcast with generational experts. I think some of it is age and stage. You know, who was it? I don't know, some American, I'm going to say it was Jefferson. It wasn't, you know, never trust someone who's not a radical in their 20s and a conservative in their 50s. Uh, there's truth to that you know like the hippies the hippies became the baby boomers think about that they were burning everything down in the 60s and by the 80s they were wall street Hmm. i mean that's the story of the boomers and some of that is age and stage like millennials are actually very hardworking. they're taking over the c-suite um they're getting mortgages they're settling down the generation that wasn't going to have kids is having kids. And yeah, there are definitely characteristics that are a little bit different. But I think you're right. I think if you give Gen Z another decade, they're going to be behaving very differently. <laughs> right. Isn't that funny? Uh-huh. So so I, th- there's a good place to start. Let's just all stop mm-hmm. throwing the next generation on the bus. And I'm speaking to myself in that. I'm going to, let's just stop throwing sure. Gen Z's under the bus. Um, I, get, I nerd out about this fact from a leadership standpoint. So one of the ways that uh, there's this uh, research firm called McCrindle Research, and they put out yeah. this grid that shows, have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Australian company, right? Exactly. We love Australians. Yeah. Yeah, um, we do. They talk about how employees view their leader. And so the really interesting switch that happened was millennials viewed their manager, their leader as guiding. That was the, the key mm. word that came to mind as they viewed their manager. Mm. They, they're there to guide me which already is wildly different than the generation before, which was more directing and more controlling. I want my my leader to tell me exactly where to go and what to do and how long to do it. Millennials wanted much more guidance. The big break that happened is Gen Zs view their manager and describe them as empowering. So mm. you're not even kind of telling me what to do anymore. You're just there to like put wind in my sails. You're just there to kind of give me permission so empowerment and guiding and controlling wildly different terms that how we would view our leaders. And so that requires a wildly different leadership style. So the way that I'm trying to challenge myself with this now is use generational data as indicative, just like I'll use a personality assessment. If Matt's an eight, Matt should be led differently than if I was to lead a one. Sure. If, if, I'm, a, if I'm leading a millennial, they need to lead that person differently than a Gen Z. So I need to know enough of the data to be dangerous but it doesn't give us, it doesn't mean that we just kind of throw up our hands and say, we can't do it. So I, I'm using it as an all indicative and, I, and I'm trying to continue to challenge myself. Okay, if this person views me as empowering, how do I need to adjust my tonality? How do I need to adjust my intensity? How do I need to adjust the level of details that I provide, mm-hmm. which probably would have been wildly different with someone of a different generation? That's super helpful. It's not one size fits all. And, Mm -hmm. but there are definitely some trends or some stages that you need to pay attention to. Matt, is there anything we haven't covered that you want to touch on? The one fat topic that I can't stop talking about these days is the power of the inner monologue as a leader. So find out what, yeah. So one, I've shared a few already we've talked about today. One of them is if you're not laughing, you're crying. This idea that uh, you have these inner statements, these inner monologues that you tell yourself on a regular basis 
maybe even just to keep you sane. So let me share a few of my inner monologues. Um, leadership is a burden, but the burden is a privilege. Hmm. Leadership is a burden, but the burden is a privilege. I tell myself that frequently so you don't get into the pity parties, the woe is me right. mindset. Right. I tell myself, if this was easy, someone else would be doing it. Hmm. I tell myself, don't forget, you volunteered for this. <laughs> That's a good so one. So these are mantras. This is yeah. self-talk to keep yeah. you in the game. Got it. And and some people would kill for my bad days. So oh. find your mantras, your inner monologues, because we all have tough, tough days and difficult times. And what our team needs from us is to not be the doom and gloom, sky is falling leader. Uh -huh. We have to project confidence. We have to project calm. And, and we have to project like um, the duck with that's crazy under the water, but calm on the surface. And so have your mantras, your inner monologues. Um, I find that that's helped keep me sane through the crazy times. That's really good. I love that. You know, I always think all the easy problems got solved by now. This is why you're here. Yeah. Uh, another one I have is, when someone comes to me with a problem, I'm like, great, that's a growth problem. I will mm -hmm. take a growth problem any day because I don't like decline problems. And we're going to have those in some seasons. But if it's a growth problem, man, you're lucky. Like, that's I've got to get a more succinct, more <laughs> succinct statement of that. But that comes out of my mouth a lot. That's a really good challenge. I like that. About. That's a growth problem. Yeah, that's it's a growth funny. problem. Sign me up, man. I'll do growth problems all day long, every single day. I'm going to steal so, that. Great. One, Matt, one, I've learned a lot. Go ahead. You got, you was, got another thought I was thought just going to say, if you're watching, you might be seeing Jocko behind me. Jocko's got this statement called good. Uh, if, uh, you, if you don't know who Jocko is, he's a Navy SEAL commander. Or was a Navy SEAL Willink. Yeah. Jocko Willink. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and very inspirational uh, guy. And he has this statement that when anything goes wrong, the immediate response as a leader is good. Good. Oh, I've heard him say that. Yeah, yeah. Good. Because now we've got an opportunity. Yeah. The house is on fire. Good. <laughs> good. Great. Mm -hmm. how, yep. How, how do we do? Things? Yeah. What do we do? It's a growth opportunity. I'm stealing that. <laughs> Birch, Birch, Birch told me this years ago, and he, we've we've had a long friendship. But he said, uh, uh, "I remember we were working together, and he came into my office. I was a senior pastor. He goes, I've got news, and I'm like, good news or bad news? He says, there is no good news. There is no bad news. There's just news. And I've never forgotten that. It's like there's no bad news. It's just news because it's just news." Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. So you got a new book. It's called Management is Dead. I had the privilege of reading it, endorsing it. I would encourage people to get out there and get it. Uh, tell us about where that's available. Obviously, everywhere books are sold, but if you have anything special about it and then when, where people can, can track with you these days, Matt. Absolutely. Yeah. So managementisdead.com or leader.com without the second E leadar.com. Uh, yeah. uh, and you can reach me at matthewtresseter.com as well. Uh, I'm online on LinkedIn because that's what tech people do. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, we post blogs all the time. You can hear more about our voice and, and what we're putting out into the world. It's fantastic. Matt, thanks. It's been a great hour. Really appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks, Gary. Well, that was honest, wasn't it? And I hope you found it helpful. Hey, we do show notes for you. Did you know that? And those show notes have a few highlights for you. We also have transcripts. So if you want to go back and check something out, I often do that on podcasts I listen to. You can check it out at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 597, which also means episode 600 is right around the corner. I'm going to tell you the guest lineup. I got one more free thing for you before we go. But first, would you check out our partners? I've got a free course, The Art of Engagement, over on the Glue platform. You can get it for free, less than 30 seconds to sign up at get dot glue dot us slash art of engagement. That's get dot G-L-O-O us slash art of engagement. And if you want to help respond to disasters that you see around the world, your organization isn't doing anything, your church isn't, you should partner with Convoy. Go to convoy.org slash carry, convoy.org slash C-A-R-E-Y to learn more. Well, one of the things I love is rich conversations. And next time we have one, I have been reading Miroslav Volf since seminary. And we talk about what makes life worth living, walking the communist death march. Yeah, he's got uh, some history in Europe with his family that we talk about. Viktor Frankl, Jürgen Moltmann, and the crippling effect of struggling for superiority. Man, it was a rich conversation. Here's an excerpt. And that means that the good has been privatized, which is to say, nobody can really tell you what kind of life is worthy of your humanity. You have to determine mm. that. Right. And I thought, well, mm. whew, 
uh, if I have to do that, and actually one of uh, one of my students, our students, said that, you know, people have been thinking about this question for three thousand years, and now I'm supposed to do that in in uh, in, in a matter of uh, one one course at Yale, or I ought to have <laughs> determined that uh, even before I took a course, I ought to have known in just by be, having been born, and it doesn't make any sense. So that's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, incredible conversations with Arthur Brooks. Finally got to talk to the author of From Strength to Strength, the book that really formed me last year. His new book is with Oprah. Talk about that. Jim Davis, oh my goodness, The Great De-Churching of America. Dave Ramsey, Judah and Chelsea Smith. Mike Todd and a whole lot more are back. We got a killer lineup this fall, guys. Plus a series on AI. Some of the conversations we're having for that one. Wow, I'll tell you, crazy. So, Thank you so much for staying to the end. And let me tell you, if you enjoyed this episode, I know there's a bajillion podcasts out there. That's why I started the Art of Leadership Network. And what these are, are podcasts that I vouch for. They're affiliated with me. And you'll hear from hosts like Adam Weber, Andy Wood, Sean Morgan, my wife, Tony Newhoff, and her co-host, Rob Meter, and a whole lot more. Jenny Catron's on the network and beyond that. So you can follow the Art of Leadership Network on Instagram, and you'll always know where to find the conversations you want and you need. So just go to Instagram, check out the Art of Leadership Network. You'll find me there and a lot of friends. We'll see you there. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I really hope today's episode helped you identify and maybe break a growth barrier you're facing. And we'll catch you next time on the podcast.